From the Source. I'm Michelle Brenner and I'm your host. From the Source aims to answer the question of what tech jobs are really like, both the good and the boring. Today we're going to hear from Frances Coronel. Frances, can you tell us what your current job title is and how long you've been there? Yes, so my current job title is software engineer at Slack on the customer acquisition team and I've been there for over a year now. I joined last June. That's exciting. I think I have about 30 Slacks right now. I think I'm addicted to joining new Slacks. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I would do without it. That's awesome. We love to hear that. (laughs) What does an average day look like for you? Depends, honestly. And whenever I get this question, it's always a little hard to answer because I feel like at least um, even now after Slack is, you know, a public company, um, it, it's always, it always feels a little different, but I think overall, I would say at least every week, I'm definitely having long hour coding sessions. Um, and I'm reviewing PRs. I'm in meetings. I'm, um, having lunch with my teammates. Uh, yeah, those are, I think I would be like the sort of general overall thing. What has been your favorite long-term project? Favorite long-term project. I actually, I would say apprenticeships.me. Um, So apprenticeships.me is a directory of apprenticeships in the tech industry, um, and it's actually been an open source project that I've been maintaining for a little over three years now, and we just actually kind of ramped it up and really cleaned it up a lot, me and my um, other partner who's working on it um, through GitHub, and we launched it on Product Hunt. And so it's gotten a little bit of traction, but I would say that's definitely been one of my favorite long-term projects. Could you tell us what's the difference between like an apprenticeship, an internship, and just kind of like an entry-level job? Yeah, sure. So an internship is really meant to target like college graduates or people in college. Um, at least for the tech industry, most of the time, these are folks that are studying computer science or freshmen, sophomore, junior. Once you get to senior college, um, that's actually when you're looking for a full-time entry-level position. Uh, The difference between internships and full-time positions is that with an apprenticeship, you don't actually have to have that hardcore technical formal background to pursue an apprenticeship. And it's usually um, a nice kind of thing in between like not getting paid and like getting paid full-time because you're getting paid, but it's more so you're getting paid to learn um, and you don't need like that traditional background. What can someone expect in an apprenticeship? Is it working on projects, but also spending a lot of time learning? Or is it kind of similar to being a junior engineer? I think it's similar actually to being more so a junior engineer, but with like more handholding in my eyes. So I really think it's pretty similar to an internship, except that the criteria for entry, like the barrier to entry is lower and more accessible. But I will say I've never done an apprenticeship program. So it's hard to say, but from the outside, that seems like what it's like. What is the most boring but essential part of your job? I've gotten some flack for this, but yeah, meetings are actually really boring, especially if you don't have anything to contribute or if people are talking about something that you don't feel is as relevant to you. Um, But I think they're a necessary evil, and I actually I think I need to get better at them, like to make the most time out of them and see value out of them, because in the past I would kind of just disregard them. And it's not healthy for the rest of the team because – when you kind of uh, set yourself in that emotional state of like being bored and disregarding something, it's kind of easy for others to tell, actually. So I'm trying to do a better job of um, not showing that and trying to engage better with everyone else, even if I 
am completely bored or like I want to distract myself during the meeting. So I need to get better at that. Do you feel like maybe you're in too many meetings? Like there's too many people in every meeting. So the topics are too broad? Definitely, um, for sure. But I think I only have like maybe one or two of those meetings, honestly. And they're really, I don't even know if they're weekly per se. So yeah, I've definitely been in some of those. And for sure, it's harder to engage. But uh, overall, I think my meetings are actually pretty small. So I don't know what you think a small meeting is. But for me, a small meeting is like, I think like I have meetings that are around seven or eight people. So it's not too bad. Um, But the larger ones, you know, really anything larger than 10, um, it gets kind of hard to cut through the noise. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I feel like, yeah, the ones that are like three or four people, I feel like we have a very strict agenda. We get through it pretty quickly. But when there's so many people, there's just so many different stakeholders, it's hard to know what people want to hear. And like what's interesting for one person in one group is not interesting for someone in another group. So it's like striking that balance between having the right meetings and being visible which is part of why we go to these meetings, even when they're boring, but also like making the most of our time. Right, exactly. So what is the most stressful part of your job? And how do you manage it? I think with past jobs, politics has actually been a big issue. um, Because, well, first of all, political situations at work or situations that where there are like human emotion involved, um, it can get in the way of work, it can get really distracting. So I think that has been probably the hardest issue. It's never been technical, actually. I've always enjoyed the technical part of my the work that I do. But I, since I consider myself a bit of an introvert, since I consider myself not as, uh, I guess, charismatic, um, it's been that part has been a little bit harder. One of the big lessons I learned from my first couple of jobs is that having everyone like you and talking to everyone is actually a huge boost to your career. It's very strange. It like doesn't your technical accomplishments are important, but they don't always stand on their own when it comes to getting recognized. And if people will remember them less than how much they like you and how much they like talking to you, which definitely puts people who are introverts or someone who's in the minority at a company at a huge disadvantage. Yeah, sometimes it's about who you know and how you act and the relationships that you build. And they're super important. I just don't think I've mastered that skill set yet or those soft skills yet. Um, And I've always focused, I think maybe, or overly indexed on the technical skill side. So something else I need to get better at, but that's okay. Is there anything you could recommend to other people in your shoes about how you're working to improve on that? Oh, actually, that's a great question. So I actually just got into this Latinx Level Up program, and it's this uh, leadership and career development program. And so I actually have one-on-ones now with a coach who kind of guides me through my career journey and points out like, hey, you know, like how you're reacting actually does affect other people on your team. And, you know, you have to think about those things better um, during meetings or during projects and so it's been actually really helpful for her to kind of just break down all these different like big points in my life and kind of break down my motivators too. It allows for a lot of self-reflection, um, which is not something I really looked at, you know, in a while. It's just that sort of self-awareness and self-reflection of my own career, my own goals, and like kind of what I want out of my own career. Um, so that's been really useful. 
of course not everyone can afford a coach and like obviously this program like pays for it because I applied and I got in. Um, so what the next best thing I would recommend is trying to find some kind of mentor, uh, whether it be like at work or outside of work, could even be a friend. Like mentor has such a kind of loaded, I think, connotation to it. But at the end of the day, a mentor is just someone who like teaches you something that you weren't aware of before. Absolutely. I definitely recommend mentorship to anyone. If I didn't have such strong mentors early in my career, I don't think I'd be where I am today. So I'm going to throw out actually Coding Coach, which I've been mentoring on that platform recently. And I've liked it a lot. That's the best platform I've used because it's very casual. Mentors just have profiles and you reach out and you schedule a time and figure out if you're a fit very quickly. So I've been enjoying that. Uh, speaking of organizations, I'd like to hear more about Techaria and what you've been up to. Yeah, sure. So for those who don't know, Techaria is a 501c3 nonprofit representing the largest community for Latinx in tech. Uh, we've been around since 2015, so almost four years now. And essentially, our goal is to kind of elevate the careers of folks who are underrepresented in tech, who specifically identify as Latinx. Um, and we do that through a number of different platforms, different avenues. Uh, the big ones right now are through open source and also through events, like just connecting folks, um, and also through our community. So we have a Slack community that is on a Cree standard plan. So there's unlimited messages there, which is very different from most communities I've been a part of, uh, which is nice. And then we also have, you know, we're just very active on all the social media platforms. We host a lot of events. Uh, so we had one with Lyft um, back in June and we're going to have one with Twitter in August. Um, yeah, and then open source, we're, we got a 10K uh, open source grant from Sentry to work on this member portal, again, to just like connect all of us together and also provide lots of resources and opportunities to just the wider community at large. Um, the, the role that I have with Techaria is actually been kind of just evolving for a while. So I've been with them for two years now. Um, initially, I was just a member, passive member, kind of just enjoying the community um, and getting taking advantage of the resources. Um, and it wasn't until April of 2018 that I decided to actually work on their website because their website wasn't very good in my eyes. Um, it was not well supported. It wasn't very engaging. Um, it didn't look very good. So I just took a tackle at it and I let the organizers know like, hey, I'd love to help out with the website, try to make it better and more useful um, to our members. And so I did that for a little bit and it came up to the point, uh, to the point where I was actually kind of revamping the entire thing. And from that effort alone, we just got so much more traction because the website, you know, our sort of big online identity was so much more powerful now. Um, it still could use a lot of work. And we actually just found out today that someone kind of lifted off the entire website and kind of like put their own content in, which was not great. But that's kind of like a disadvantage of making everything open source. But either way, you know, after that kind of effort, um, just this March, I became a board member. So becoming a board member just means like I vote on sort of the policies that we have kind of nationally for all our different chapters across LA, New York City, Chicago, Austin, FF, et cetera. And 
as a board, we decide on that. So I'm just one of the folks who vote, um, but I'm hoping to take on a more executive role like in the future, um, but we'll see what happens. So I've been involved with them for about two years. It's really exciting what we've been able to do um, since I've joined. Um, and I'm really looking forward to just growing it more and just scaling it you know, across the country. Do you feel like being part of that nonprofit helped grow your skills and contribute to your career success? Yeah, I think anyone who contributes to open source as an engineer is always going to get a lot out of it because it does mimic reality, I think, a little bit more. Um, and because it's not closed source, uh, everyone can kind of see what you're doing and can hold you to a higher standard. So for me, that was actually really helpful. Um, I was able to showcase that work when I was looking for a job. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was really useful. From talking with members of that community, what do you think are the biggest challenges for them getting hired and getting promoted in tech companies? Uh, I think a lot of it is a lack of knowledge of, as to what resources are out there. So for me, right, um, even though I've been sort of interested in computer science since like senior year of high school, even though I have a bachelor's and master's in computer science, I didn't really know about any of these nonprofit organizations that support uh, people of color or just women in technology until like I got into the industry. And I don't think that should be the case. And these are even for organizations that um, help you know, high schoolers or college students. Like, I didn't know about any of them. So for me, it's kind of, and I see that with other people now, too. It's like, oh, I just found out about Tech Korea, or I just found out about Right Speak Code, or Women Who Code, or Women Tech Makers, you know, and I'm already, like, two or three years into my career. Um, so, and I don't really know why that is the case, but it's definitely, like, that lack of resources. And I think maybe it's because, of the connections um, people have. So maybe at like t more top tier schools, they kind of have that infrastructure set up where everybody is given access to those resources really early on. But um, yeah, I'm not 100% sure. But I think for me and our, our community, at least from what I've seen, a big pain point has been like that lack of knowledge around the resources that are offered. And so making that access to those resources making the barrier to entry even lower um, is going to be kind of one of the things that we want to address in a new member portal that we're building out. For the nonprofits that I've worked with, definitely our biggest challenge has been reaching those who aren't look already looking. So reaching people who are already searching meetups or searching Eventbrite, those people will find us. For the people that don't even know to do that, that's been a huge challenge in how we reach those in the community. Right, exactly. So then it's about tapping into the school network, tapping into networks they're already a part of. Um, and so, yeah, that's something we need to, we're starting to actually work on that, like those kinds of partnerships. So what would you advise a tech company to do to be more inclusive to the Latinx community? So something, so there's like two types of work that I've been sort of educated on. There's the surface level work, which is like for me kind of events and you know, trying to be more inclusive in hiring, um, like using Textio, which is this platform that will give you a score um, and will tell you how like aggressive kind of your wording is because the wording, how you present the job and like the work that you're trying to hire for is really important. That all, all of that stuff is kind of like surface level work. And then there's another type of work, which is like very deep work um, 
I guess, under the water work. I haven't come up with a good phrase for it yet, but this is kind of the heavier work that's going to require bigger lift and it's going to take a lot more time. And for me, this kind of work involves like creating an environment um, where people of color, where women, or where specifically Latinx in this question, like want to stay and don't feel excluded and feel like they're thriving in. Because it's one thing, I think, to like want to have people work for your company, but it's another thing to actually have them feel happy at your company and feel like they're contributing and like are satisfied, which is hard for any employee, honestly, to have. But I think especially for people of color who are vastly underrepresented, it's like, it's a completely different story. And we have a very leaky tech pipeline where there are obstacles every step of the way, whether, you know, you're talking about STEM, you know, there's not enough women or people of color studying STEM or interested in STEM, like at early ages, all the way to like entrepreneurship, where it's like people of color and women, they just don't get enough financial support for these endeavors they want to take on. Because frankly, the you know, it's really homogenous group of people who have that money right now. And it's all like intergenerational wealth that's been created by, you know, the tycoons and titans of this area that we're in. Yeah, it's really hard to hire a person of color if like you have a group of 30 men who are, you know, maybe all white and all heterosexual, and you're trying to hire like even just one person of color, like if they go and they're like exposed to the environment, it's just going to be a little awkward. So that's why I think it's much easier to start early, especially if you're a startup or a smaller company, than to start later when you actually realize, oh, crap, you know, our DNI is actually pretty bad and we should do something about it now. Um, it's always reactive, it seems, instead of um, proactive. I wonder if part of the challenge is hiring the leaders first and letting them grow their team would actually be more effective because then it'd be kind of setting the tone from the top instead of trying to force people who are just starting their career and also do this extra emotional labor. Mm. I really like that idea and I have a few follow-up thoughts. So like regarding the idea of sort of the junior level person taking on a lot of the work, I agree with that. I think there are too many junior level people who are people of color and women and also like and not enough representation like at senior levels within the same company and I also feel like a lot of junior level employees want to feel do feel some obligation for DNI like efforts and so they help out with their ERG or they help out like with those sort of things and they make themselves visible for the company but the company doesn't really give anything in return so I've always had a sticky situation with like ERGs and kind of getting involved with ERGs um, because if you were part of the majority, you would have no motivation to be a part of that to help out with that because everything has already been like set up for you for success. Whereas with ERGs, like you kind of want to contribute to that work though because it's going to help other people like you like be elevated um, and kind of showcase your company as diverse. I don't know. I have a sticky relationship with ERGs, but the other thing that you said regarding like leadership and maybe hiring leadership so that they build out that team themselves. I actually really like that idea because anytime I see like an engineering team who has an engineering manager, who's either a woman or a person of color, I don't know. Anecdotally, it seems like their, their teams are actually more diverse just overall compared to other teams. So maybe that is like something we need to do. 
what you were talking about where they'll do this work for these ERGs. For listeners who don't know, those are employee resource groups that usually are just a group of people at an organization that are getting together to promote whatever diverse group they're in, like women or people of color, or LGBTQ. One of the problems with that is that it takes you away from those marketable, promotable skills. So when you know promotion time comes around, you've had less time to work on very technical, very visible projects because you spent more time on that. So that can definitely be a downside, but you also growing that community helps the whole company and helps others. So it's hard to maintain that balance of doing that extra work, but also making sure you're in line for promotion and you're in line to be in leadership. Yeah, I just think the model that most companies have right now where uh, like an employee is supposed to volunteer for like working for these ERGs, it doesn't really make sense to me. And I think that it would be more beneficial for both sides if there were just full time people dedicated to that, um, like an ERG lead. And then that was just their full time job. And then the employees just benefited from the work that, you know, they're supposed to be paid for um, instead of the employees like you know, volunteering their time and not really getting too much benefit from it. Like in my experience for all my past jobs, contributing to these efforts for DNI are not going to get you promoted. Yeah, they should just pay someone to do that. Really unfortunate because having a more diverse company will make you more money and also less likely to do unethical things because you have people be in the room and be like, hey, don't do this. Right, exactly. And so the question I've gotten a lot too is like, why is DNI important in the first place? And I'm curious as to like what your take on that is, like from your experience. I heard this great story on a podcast that I used with everyone who asked me that question, but I think it was the first black employee at Twitter. And he always asked the question of where do you keep your ketchup? So some people keep their ketchup in the fridge and some people keep it in the closet. So if you keep it in the fridge and you're out of ketchup, you're going to look for something else in the fridge as an alternate. If you keep it in a closet, you're going to look for something in the closet as an alternate. So you're going to look at vinegar or something that's in the closet. If you're in the fridge, you're going to look for mayonnaise or mustard. So he uses that analogy to show that when you have people from different backgrounds, they're going to solve problems in different ways. And the more options you have to solve problems, the better your company will be. Hmm, I like that story. <laughs> I found that very effective with people who aren't in the minority who are like, why do I care about this? And I'm like, well, it'll make your company better. So have you ever watched the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey? I have not. I've only seen parodies. The gist of it is like there's a group of people in space and there's this robot with them. Well, that's not the whole gist of it, but that's the gist of it that is kind of relevant. There's this robot with them called the HAL 9000. And the HAL 9000 is this AI, essentially, that helps them, you know, run logistics and just helps them out with anything they need um, on their spaceship. But midway through, this HAL 9000, like, goes bonkers and basically starts to try and kill off everybody on the spaceship. And so he becomes, like, the main antagonist of the film. And I always like to tell that story because I feel like if we keep having these homogenous ways of thinking, these homogenous groups of people like solving the toughest problems that we're looking at or the problems that will define our future and like the technologies that will be embedded in our everyday lives, like these machine learning algorithms, then we're actually going to lead um, you know, ourselves to a future where these algorithms are biased against certain groups of people. And, you know, we'll end up totally bonkers because they haven't thought about the edge cases. So it's really just another way of kind of saying what you said, like 
promoting different ways of thinking, but also like trying to tie it into something like this dystopian future that would happen if we don't have that, like at the very highest levels of like computation and like this, the tech industry. You can kind of see that already happening with these digital products that come out that only focus on a subset of people and don't think about kind of the long talent people's different experiences. Things like choosing a gender, putting in your real name. Uh, they can create these very dangerous experiences for people and the people in the room don't have any of that experience so they don't think about what could what are the downsides and the possibilities of putting that in their products. Right, exactly. And another example that's really famous and I think that just kind of really resonated with me is that there was this Google Photos incident where they were mislabeling black people as gorillas or apes because they hadn't tested their product or their algorithms enough on people of color. And so it led to that very like big misjudgment on the product part, um, probably because they didn't have any black people on their team or maybe just any people of color in general. So that to me like really just kind of was a good example of what happens um, if you just don't have that DNI like on your team. I think more and more people are realizing this, but it's kind of terrifying the way using machine learning and AI, we're kind of baking bias into computer programs that it's going to make, and it makes it much harder to realize where the decision making is coming from. So everyone thinks like, oh, the computer is making the decision. It's being completely unbiased, but all it is, is a computer doing the if-l statements based on the data that it collected based on people with bias. So it's just kind of standardizing the bias and making it invisible instead of having a person make those decisions from something like a loan application where it's like, oh, hey, you didn't give any women or people of color loans. And the computer algorithm will be like, well, historically we have it. So why do it now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that kind of ties into like bias data sets and just not having enough data that's like really representative sort of the population that we have. Um, there was this uh, book that I was given recently about um, how women work and how you can work better in the workplace as a woman and take advantages of like, I don't know, that identity. And I was looking at the data um, and they said of all the women that we interviewed, it was like over a hundred women, I think 10 were women of color. Um, and I was like, whoa, hold on. Um, now I don't know like how much of this is actually going to be like uh, relevant for me because only like 10% of the data is, you know, being told by women of color. And then within the women of color, they said, um, you know, and they either identify as Asian, Latinx or black or Native American. So I don't even know how many specifically identified as Latina. And so there was like that whole thing. And that's kind of the problem with, well, not the problem, but that's kind of something that you have to consider with intersectional identities. Like when you're not just a woman, but you're also like a woman of color, you have to think about those things because it's not the same experience. Um, and I think we've been able to see that. Definitely a lack of data coming out for that. So people are just making bad decisions based on bad data and it's really disheartening. Yeah, this actually um, reminds me. So I was listening to one of your previous podcast episodes and you were talking about Girl Develop It, right? Do you want to uh, iterate like on that and sort of explain what happened there? Well, 
There was a couple problems. So I started with them, I think like a year ago, and I was just like super excited. I really wanted to be a part of it. I really wanted to create value in the community, but it completely fell apart. Uh, There's two main reasons. One, they didn't support women of color and treated them very badly. And then two, they kind of did what it seems to be like a pattern sometimes in nonprofits where... The local organizations are really great. They're very organized. They're reaching out to the community. They're doing great things. And then suddenly they get bigger and bigger and bigger. They become these national organizations. And then they stop caring about the local level. So I kind of came in near the tail end of everything. Um, And I didn't realize what was going on. So it's kind of like they had all these rules for running a local chapter, but they had very little support for the local chapters. So coming in as a new leader, I was like, it was really hard for me to accomplish anything. When I started to hear all this information about how they treated people, I was like, wait, this isn't what I want to be a part of. I don't want to be part of an organization actually making things worse and not caring about intersectionality and helping everyone, understanding the different needs of the different communities. It kind of made me more wary about the organizations I join. And the big thing for me is making sure Basically, there are goals and OKRs and knowing that we're actually helping people and like showing numbers of things getting better type of ways, like whatever your goal is. So if your goal is to get more people jobs or get more people money or get more people starting businesses, actually showing as a nonprofit, you're actually accomplishing that. You're not just a way for large tech companies to look good. You're actually accomplishing something. Yeah, that's that's really great stuff. Um, and something I want to consider too with Techeria because we're going to be creating our first impact report since we incorporate as a nonprofit this year, you know, towards the end of the year. And I, that's something that we've discussed as a board is like really wanting to quantify the impact that we've made because it's so easy to just like, you know, put in pictures and kind of put in all the happy faces of people at our events. But like, who have we really, you know, helped out and like help get a new job um, because of the connections they've made through organization. And also, too, because of my involvement with Girl Develop It, I actually, I used to be really keen on kind of just jumping into these organizations that I was a part of before I was involved with Techeria, like just kind of like women in tech organizations. Um, I would just kind of like want to jump in and be like, hey, how can I help out? And I think ever since I learned about what happened there, like with GDI, I've kind of been likewise, like more hesitant to do that. Um, and like prioritizing my time a lot better. Um, so I think that that's been a good thing. Um, but yeah, I used to be involved with them. I, I spoke for um, one of their events in SF, um, like women in open source. And then I've also like volunteered my time through to their um, like open source repos. So, uh, but yeah, I think ever since that kind of happened, I've been trying to like, just to see disassociate myself with that org um, because it was just really unfortunate. And I I was hearing the stories um, from the black women who were calling everything out and, you know, like they didn't talk about Latino women, obviously, but I couldn't imagine like if I was, you know, part of that, those chapters that were ignoring my needs, like I'd be really disappointed too. Definitely. It sounds like your experience you know, a little bit echoes mine, where it's like you now you're a little more careful about what you sign up for and make sure it's very effective. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Tech Queens. What made you decide to start a podcast? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, good. Yeah, sure. So um, I start. I had this idea last year, back in October. I love listening to podcasts, especially podcasts about people talking about technology or the tech industry in general. 
and I was I was at some point after I had been listening to quite a few of these, um, and I usually listen to them during work when I'm like coding. They're just kind of in the background, and I was thinking, huh, you know, I haven't really heard a lot of women of color like talking about technology so far, and I had been listening to podcasts for like two years already, and this was back last year, and um, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna look for some. Shouldn't be that hard to find. I'm sure, there's like some like podcasts featuring women of color talking about technology in some setting. And I really couldn't find anything. Um, And I think it wasn't until after a few months after that, where I kind of was able to finally build up the courage to try and say, hey, there is this gap that I can fill. And even though I have absolutely no podcasting experience, I can figure it out. You know, like, I feel like I'm smart enough to do that. And so I did. And I called it Tech Cleans because I, well, I initially was going to call it, I think, Alexis or something um, because it was like Alexa. I don't know. It was, it was weird. I was trying to like mess with different names, but ultimately I landed on Tech Cleans because I wanted people who were on my podcast to feel like empowered and really powerful or just have that sense of power because that's not something that we really experience in the workplace. Um And I'm trying to fill that gap. And the gap I'm trying to fill is like having women of color who are in the tech industry talking about their experiences and talking about technology in general. Um, And it's been really fulfilling. It's also been really hard because, again, I have like no podcasting experience. So like the first time I tried to edit one of the first episodes I ever recorded, it took me like... I would say at least eight hours, if not more, like throughout several days. And it was such a pain. I decided to actually outsource that part. So that's not an issue anymore. But then it was also like the issue of me just personally feeling confident enough to like be vulnerable on this podcast and kind of expose myself um, to these people, some of which I did know, some of which I didn't know, most of which I didn't know, like personally. And like making that public because everything that, you know, cause I'm using this uh, product called anchor. So it's like a publish once distribute everywhere model where it's going on every major podcasting platform. And so um, there's a lot of different people like listening to it and it's not necessarily other women of color and tech either. It's just kind of anyone interested. So anyway, it's been really fulfilling. It's also been kind of hard and I'm trying to like, find new ways to scale it better and also automate the social media part of it because it's a lot of work (laughs) to do the social media part of anything and I'm not like a social media guru either but the actual part that I enjoy the most is the recording part just like being with the other person who also identifies as a woman of color in tech and like just having an honest one-to-one conversation I've already learned like so much and been able to relate like so much to their experiences. And that's been really, that's been really joyful and fulfilling. Hosting a podcast is that I can, I had the opportunity to ask people to be on the show and talk to people that I normally wouldn't have access to. And I found that very rewarding. Have you found that you've been able to reach out to people who you normally wouldn't get to chat with? Um, I don't know if I necessarily wouldn't be able to chat with them. Um, Like, I I guess for me, it's been like not seeing the side of them. Like for me, all the people on my podcast so far, like we could definitely be friends. Um, I don't know if we are friends, but like we definitely could be friends. Like that's how I feel about it. But 
it's um, sort of seeing the side of them because they do get vulnerable, like about the challenges they've experienced and the strategies they've used to overcome those challenges. So for me, the rewarding part has been feeling friendly towards my interviewees, but also like seeing the side of them, I think that not many people get to see, honestly. As long as you identify as a woman of color in tech, like I want to have you on the podcast, like no other requirements needed. And then it's up to you to like, tell me your story. Do you have any goals for what you want to do next in your career? Yeah, I want to become a senior engineer, like ASAP. (laughs) No, but like, I think because I've been in this industry for about four years now, I'm like at the point where I feel like I can take on the next level. And like, I also am ready for the responsibilities that that entails. Do you feel like you have a clear idea of what it takes to be a senior? I think for me, it's not just like the experience of like failing and trying over again, but also just like that sense of autonomy. I think that's the biggest thing that a lot of people don't realize is that as a junior engineer, even as just like a regular engineer, you know, below, slightly below senior, you're not you're still going to have some autonomy, but for the most part, you will kind of have that support. I think in my experience with senior engineers, they're the ones that are kind of taking on the lead and like helping others understand that. So they're completely autonomous over their work and their work is highly visible. And they're the ones that are expected to kind of be on top of things rather than, you know, others being on top of them per se. Um, So for me, that kind of is the gist of it but I recognize it's a lot more than that and I don't know if I check all the boxes yet but for sure I think I check most of them if our listeners want to reach out via social media how can they find you sure so uh if you just google my name honestly you will find all the things I've tried my hardest to like keep the same handle everywhere so it's fec productions on almost every platform including LinkedIn, which I would say I'm probably the most active on now in terms of like social media per se. Uh, But yeah, feel free to reach out with any platform you like. I'm probably on it. To keep up to date on upcoming episodes or to continue the conversation, please follow us on Twitter at FromSourcePod. If you'd like to share your journey with our audience or have any questions about the podcast, please email me at FromTheSourcePod at gmail.com.